everybody. My Andrew Cooperwriter. Of course, this is the Andrew Cooperwriter show. I thank you guys so much for joining me. Uh, today we've got some great topics to cover. We've got two amendments on the ballot. Uh, this here upcoming November, I'm going to go over both those amendments and talk about what it is that um, they do. What do they mean? What do they say? Uh, as well, we're going to talk about the, the Biden administration spending $3.6 million in the Appalachians of Kentucky to uh, put in drug paraphernalia vending machines. And then um, finally, there's some talks about putting in a runoff rule, just some talks, just some chit chat, some chatter. Talk about what that does. What does it mean to Kentucky? Why is it being considered? So before we dive into those very important topics, I want to remind you guys to please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Um, to if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe. If you're watching this uh, on Facebook, hit the like, hit the share. And as always, you can catch these video. If you're watching the video version, this is available as a podcast. Uh, on all major podcasting platforms, audio only version. So you can take us with you on the go. You don't got to just leave open the YouTubes or the Facebook. You can, you can listen on the go if you just want to be able to, to hear me do my breakdown. So, well, thank you guys for joining me and you know, let's dig into it. Let's talk about these amendments first on our ballot this year, November, we're going to have these two amendments, amendment one amendment two. what do they do? What do they mean? What do they say? So, the first amendment you're going to be voting on will be an amendment to uh, change our con well amendments all change our constitution right, but would be to change specifically the legislative uh, rules for um, how the legislative sessions can be conducted. Okay, so to give you an idea, so, so you understand how it is now. <coughs> our legislature is supposed to be a part-time legislature, and right now it. Um, on odd numbered years, like, uh, 2023, for an example, um, <clears throat> it would meet only 30 days and then they have to be out of session by March 30th. So they start early January and then they have to be done by March 30th during the even years. They have a 60 day session. It's the longer session. That's also when they do their budget because they do the budget every two years. And. Um, well, they don't have to do the budget every two years. They did the budget one year a few times over COVID because of, you know, whatever. But anyways, um, on even years, you have 60 days and they got to be out by April 15th. Now, these are important things to understand as you're considering this amendment. Now, where the limitations of our legislature came reared its head was during, of course, uh, COVID issues and in, in when we were talking about the lockdowns and, and the mandates and everything else Bashir was putting into place and the legislature was unable to do anything about it for a full year at least because of the fact that they were not they have to be called into a special session by the governor in order to legislate otherwise they have no powers and so during that entire time the legislator couldn't do anything about the Bashir issues and so for that reason, they said, look, you know, the legislature needs to be able to call itself into session. So the amendment allows the legislature to call itself into session um, for an additional 12 days at the call of both the House uh, um, Speaker and then the, the Senate President. So Stivers and Osborne right now. Um, but of course, those elections are coming up. Those are elections that, you know, the members of the House member of the Senate do. 
And so if both them agree that they want to call a session, then they go ahead and they can call a session with this amendment. And they have 12 additional days beyond their 30 or 60 to have a special session. So they can deal with things. So if the governor doesn't want to call it, they can call it. And so they can address a situation. Now, that's not the only thing the bill does, though. And because if that was the only thing the bill did, I think we would... I, I, I think it would be silly to not, I think it'd be a little silly to not support it. Right. Because follow me here. One is, is, you know, people talk about the, the, the Democrats, especially suddenly become huge fiscal conservatives. Anytime we're talking about Republicans having oversight over Democrats, all of a sudden they start worrying about how much things cost. Well, if we call you into session, that costs more money to the taxpayer and blah, 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 blah. It, and, and while granted, I'm not saying it doesn't, <clears throat> and I'm not saying we shouldn't be careful with taxpayer dollars. We absolutely should. But, of the many things that government wastes money on, I don't think having oversight over um, the, the the billions of dollars that is being spent by the executive <laughs> should be held up because we're worried about spending a million dollars on a special session of, of the legislature to have oversight on billions that the executive branch is spending. That makes no sense. And at least it doesn't to me, right? So I don't think the argument, I'm not as worried about the cost side of things. My only possible concern about this amendment, one is, is it stated because they're like, look, you know, when Bashir calls us, uh, refused to call us in a session, we couldn't do anything. So this would help address that issue. So it we have seen where them being unable to call themselves in a session is a problem. Now, one would argue, and maybe I might be a person who could argue this, that when they come into session anyways during special session, do they do important and good work? Normally, of course, you know, when we see that the actual emergencies like Eastern and Western Kentucky, we do see the governor calling them into session. Now, what that would allow them to do if they can call their own session in to kind of do it, because so how it works now is that when the governor calls the session, they set the agenda of items that they're allowed to do. And so there has to be, um, essentially they have to work out a pre-deal between the governor and the legislators in order to call the session in. So that way they're passing a deal that, that, so to get the governor to call the session, they make a pre-deal about what they're going to pass. We saw this here, um, in the special session of 2020, one, um, we saw this special session, and this is where they had the pre-deals worked out on what they're doing with the hospitals that were short-staffed and everything else. And then also as well, they had a pre-deal worked out on that Ford deal. If you guys remember from prior podcasts, I've talked about this, that our legislature passed $410 million to go to an unknown company at the time, which turned out to be Ford Battery Plant, $410 million of your tax dollars that were voted on there. And that was done in a special session called by the governor. So the governor called them to just vote on that. Now, if that's the kind of things that the legislature wants to do with their special sessions, um, then, you know, obviously that's something we, the people should probably think hard and long about supporting them and doing if they're going to spend hundreds of millions of our tax dollars giving it to a private company. But that's a prior podcast, which you can go back on and look. But they're going to do that regardless. So my thought of why I, I'm not as concerned about that is because, it, you know, the governor called them in to do that. They're going to do that. They all love doing it. It's, it's not a concern that I think we should have um, in general as we're looking at this amendment about those sides of things, because if they want to spend our money and be ridiculous, they're going to do it regardless. And they're going to get called into session by the governor. So here is my, um, 
thought process here on on them calling themselves into session. It means they don't have to strike a deal with the governor, which you know could be good, right? That means they can do things and respond to things without waiting for the governor to give them the okay. And and I think that provides some good oversight. Now, here's my only pause on this amendment. And if the amendment didn't do this, I would I would full on say yes, this is an important thing. We should vote yes for it. But what gives me pause is there's a line in this amendment that says that it would uh, take away. Remember earlier when I talked about how they have to be out of session on odd years by March 30th and then even years by April 15th, the 30 and 60 day sessions, right? Well, this takes away that requirement. It takes away the requirement to be out by that time instead of just as December 31st. So what this amendment would allow the legislators to do on even just an odd year where you only have 30 days is they could come into session, their regular session, not their special sessions, their regular session, and come into session two to three days a month every single month. So let's say at the end of every month, they say, we're going to come in for two to three days. And then, of course, on the even years, um, where they have 60 days, they could come in for five days every month, or essentially one week a month, 25% of the time, and come in to session. Now, this is why it gives me pause. When we look at the growth of our federal government, and, and you know, I understand state government, federal government, a little bit different as far as growth goes, but if we look at our growth of the federal government, those positions, the position of legislature was supposed to be a part-time job. It was supposed to be a part-time job, and it was supposed to be, uh, you, you would go back home and be a farmer or shopkeeper or whatever it is that you did back in the day. And the reason why is because they didn't want you detached from your own decisions. They didn't want you in your ivory tower, making decisions for the rest of everybody, and then you're not feeling the repercussions of that. They want you to feel, they want you to be a citizen first. They want you to be uh, a, a member of your community, living in the community communities that you create and dealing with the consequences of your actions. And the biggest change that happened was Congress started coming into session more and more where it stopped being a part-time job. It started being a full-time job and they came up there and they decided, well, we need to fill time to do it. Cause remember even outside of session, they still hold committee hearings. So they still hold committee hearings and they still hold meetings and they still come together and so out of session, they still sit there and they do these things. So what they could do is, with this amendment, it is possible. And and I, I've asked a few representatives. I'm like, am I misrepresenting this? Is this what it can do? They're like, yep. Like, th what they can do is, is they can come in. They can hold their committee hearings for a few weeks leading up to the session. Right. And because they do that now where they have committee hearings. So they had their committee hearings. They don't count as session days. They talk and 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 work out what they're going to pass then they come into session for two days three days they <laughs> for two days or three days they pass a bill um then they wait to see if it's going to be vetoed and then they can overcome that that month so they pass a couple of bills wait to see if they're over vetoed and then they overcome it that month so they could do like two three days one week and then one day the next week and basically this amendment would allow our legislature to now be in session every month and essentially work as a legislature every single day. Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It provides an avenue for the growth of government. 
it provides because they're doing their in-between meetings now. They just only can pass things during the first 30 days uh, or, or sorry, during the first couple of months of each year. So the question becomes is that um, the days stay the same, the powers stay the same, but we're spreading it out over time. Is this a growth of government? It provides an opportunity for them <clears throat> to work towards that slow slug of having now we have a full-time legislature and a full-time what have you. But the question then becomes, do we want our legislatures to have oversight or not? I get it. I understand a lot of you out there, you do not trust your local house rep. You do not trust your legislature. That's why we saw so many elections coming in <clears throat> here this past week. So many wins by strong Liberty constitutional candidates. And so what we're seeing is, is, is them winning and, and people representing the fact that they feel like they can't trust their legislature in their elections. But at the end of the day, Somebody has to be running our government. And if it isn't the legislature, then it's going to be the governor. And now I'm left with a question of, while I'm afraid of the ongoing march and growth of government, because legislatures will do whatever they need to do to fill their time. Trust me, you give them more time, you let them have five days a month, they will, they will figure out how to fill their time and do more and more things. They'll, they'll get it figured out. But, but, once again, the governor would be running if they're not. And so do you want one person to be concentrated with so much power with no oversight? I mean, we see this with the, for example, the contracts review committee, they vote no on contracts. The governor can just go ahead and override it and, and spend money on it for as long as they want. And then not until the next session can they end it. And so it does. And we see that too, with the rules and regulation committee where they're doing oversight on rules and regulations. And there was one here, like for an example, um, during uh, 2021, during the committee hearing in regards to um, rules and regulations in regards to, I think, masking, um, it was in regards to. And so the legislature had to wait till they got into a session in order to vote down that rule and regulation, even though they all were against it. So <clears throat> It's a mixed bag here. I mean, Amendment 1's a mixed bag for me. I'm going to be honest. I don't know how I will vote on it. Um, I see the positives. We can keep a, a strange governor in check. Absolutely a positive. I would argue that there were some other ways we could keep the governor in check, and, and, and that's its own argument, but I see that. The other thing is, is you know, the growth of government, does it represent uh, them being in session the same days but more spread out, giving them more actual time to legislate even though they don't have more session days? Like I said, I was talking about the committee's things. Does that create uh, a situation, right? I don't see an actual situation with them having, if, if they just had the 12 extra legislative days for special sessions, I'd be like, yeah, okay, I'm good with that. I'm good. I'm going to vote yes. You can call yourself in the session because if you're going to hurt us, the governor's probably going to collude with you anyway. So you would really only be helping us or, or doing uh, when there's a, a separation of ideas as far as agenda goes. But, with allowing the session to be now not deadline cut off, now extended out through the whole year, do we we stop? Do we stop seeing a part-time legislator? 
do we instead start seeing these career politicians a lot more pervasive in our state legislature? I don't know. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves. So talk to your local reps uh, and, and state senators about what I just brought up there. Say, hey, what about the concern of you guys being able to be in session pretty much all year long with this amendment? Because I think that's worth talking about before we jump in willy nilly and support it a little bit more. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Maybe I'll try to get somebody on to talk about it and, and we can have that discussion and um, figure out whether or not we should support that. Now, next we have Amendment 2. No question about it. You should vote yes on Amendment 2. What Amendment 2 does is it simply affirms what is currently true. So right now in our Constitution, there is no right to an abortion. Our state Constitution, there's no right to it. Just like there's no right to it at the federal level, but then we saw a rogue judge come in and decide, well, I'm going to read into it or rights that there are. Essentially, what we're saying with Amendment 2, if you vote yes on it, you're saying the legislature should have control over whether or not they can pass whatever abortion laws they want to pass. So if you like what's going on right now in Kentucky, no abortions unless in danger of the mother's life, then you need to vote yes on Amendment 2. If you believe, even if you believe in abortion, but you see, you have to admit that at no point did anybody ever make a vote or change to the Constitution to put in a right to an abortion. And so what's happening is, and this is happening in a court case right now, where these far left activists are, are trying to argue that our state constitution somehow provides a right to an abortion. And this is costing us money. It's costing us time. It's a, it's, it's ridiculous. And we are worried that a judge may read into the law, a right for an abortion that doesn't exist. And by passing this amendment, one, it saves taxpayer funds because we stop having to deal with these cases. Two, it ensures that a rogue legislature, a rogue leg, a rogue judiciary doesn't read into law and constitution something that doesn't exist because they're being an activist judge. And it's already happened once in Kentucky where a judge has ruled that way. Now, thankfully, it was overturned where it's put a pause on it right now. But if we want to save money and you want to allow the legislature to properly handle this issue as they should, um, you need to vote yes on Amendment 2. You need to tell people to vote yes on Amendment 2. Yesterday, well, I'm recording this Monday, but this goes out Tuesday. But this last Sunday, I was in church. And I go to, I'm going to call it, it's a conservative church. Um, I think I think the church is maybe closed for COVID, like all of one, <laughs> one um, um, service for in-person service. And then it was open the whole rest of the time, right? Um, I go to a pretty conservative church, and, and it's weird that we have to say churches are conservative. They should all be conservative. But anyways, and the 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 gentleman giving announcements, I go to a church about 75, not a huge church. I'm not a huge church guy necessarily. And church about 75, and the announcer, the guy doing the announcement said, hey, how many of you know about Amendment 2, Yes for Life Amendment 2, that is on the ballot in November? Guys, I'm in a conservative church. All voters, all Republicans all believe in the sanctity of life. Not a single person other than me and my wife raised our hands. Not a single person knew about it other than me and my wife and the entire church. That's a problem. We need to get out there. We need to be uh, talking more with our friends and neighbors and telling them here about Amendment 2, telling them to vote yes on it. So that covers the two amendments. Um, what's sticking the line of legislation? Let's talk about talks of a runoff. So right now there's some chitter chatter, some rumors about possibly looking at changing some legislation to, um, make it to where governor primaries have runoffs. Now, once again, this is, I hate when we legislate for 
for specific situations, but this is an interesting situation. So what has happened with our governor elections recently? So it used to be when you declared you're running for governor, you had to declare who your LT was, even during the primary, who your lieutenant governor was. So you were, uh, it'd be like, you know, now you can choose your vice president after you win the primary at the federal level. Well, before it'd be like having to choose your vice president before you go into the primary. And so that coupled with um, a few other things and, and being able to choose afterwards means there's some incentive to maybe not choose your lieutenant governor necessarily very early. And then there's also some incentive for people who maybe would normally run as lieutenant governors with other individuals to now um, jump in as a governor because one, they want to show their chops. And two, one argument could be that, well, you want a pretty well-performing governor primary candidate to be your lieutenant governor to help bring unity to the party after the primary. So that's a thought too. But what this has resulted in, or whether it's just because Bashir's uniquely unlikable and it's an open seat primary and it's a red state. And so people really feel whoever wins the primary will become the next governor of Kentucky uh, and will beat Bashir. Um, they really believe that. And and I believe it too, because Bashir is, is, you know, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. He claims he's a moderate Democrat, but what's that really mean now these days? But anyways, so instead, the concern, though, is that, well, hold on here, because if we've got 10 candidates in there, it's feasible that somebody wins with only 11 percent. I mean, let's 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 just talk about the the major major candidates. And, I, and, and, and look, I'm not trying to go here and remember everybody's name and list everybody out, but I'm going to talk about candidates that will raise and spend a million dollars in the election. The ones we have in now, Kraft, Cameron. Quarles, Maddox, Dieters, I think will spend over a million. Um, Harmon, he's a sitting member. I don't know if he raises a million or not, but you know, right now in some polling I've seen, he's doing pretty good. So he's kind of a major candidate, right? So that's six right now. Bevin's rumored to jump in. And honestly, if you're him, it'd be kind of silly not to. And he obviously will raise over a million. And then Alan Keck, who's the mayor of Somerset is, is looking at running. He'll probably raise over a million. That's eight candidates spending over a million dollars. Those all, if, if you're spending that kind of money, you'd say, well, there's a chance. There's a chance. I'll be maybe small for some and others, but there's a chance that you can win. And so if we got eight candidates with, with a chance, they could win with a chance. And I'm not saying the other people don't have a chance. But the concern is, is you end up with a candidate that everybody other than like 12% hates. And so they either don't show up and vote or they vote for Bashir. Because remember, I mean, Bashir beat Bevin by 5,000 votes in a relatively red state. So that concern is real that Republicans will cross over and vote for Bashir if there's too much of an unlikable candidate. And I don't mean unlikable in the sense of... I don't know. I don't mean unlikable in the sense of too far right per se. I just mean unlikable like nobody likes the person because they're a terrible person. And there's a few candidates like that. Um, but my point is, is that my point is, is, is the concern is, okay, we have this person win. Can't unite the party. Nobody can get behind nobody or, or at least a good chunk of people don't think is better than uh, Bashir and then Bashir wins again. And so the concern I think it's slightly founded when you have 10 candidates that are reasonable. Well, right now, eight, eight candidates that are reasonably 
uh, uh, competitive in the seat, it, it becomes a problem. I mean, do we really want our governor essentially picked by 20% of the Republican votes next time? I, I don't know. I mean, look. And so a lot of states do this to avoid this situation where they have a runoff in primary. So if nobody gets a certain level percentage of the vote. So um, the things I've read were saying 40% of the vote. A lot of places will say 51% of the vote. So if you don't get a majority of the vote, it creates a runoff. And so essentially what happens is, is the top two vote getting candidates then have their own election against each other like a month or so later. And then whoever wins the majority of the vote between those two would then go on um, to be the Republican nominee. It's an interesting idea. It's an interesting thought. It would be a practice that I think would bring some unity to the Republican party afterwards, or at least they're like, well, you know, people voted for this guy. Right. And then you don't end up with a, a, a very interesting person winning the primary that, that one, not only has no chance, but two is, is somebody that nobody supports other than 12% of the electorate. It's possible now. I, and I, and look, you know, if you win the primary, maybe you win the primary. I don't know. And, and the point being made is like, looks, if, if we still had to declare our Lieutenant governors and that was an accidental thing, they didn't purposely change that law that happened on accident. Um, it was the side effect of, of some other law changes that occurred that nobody saw coming. So remember that when legislatures, legislators try to tell you a bill doesn't do exactly what somebody's trying to say it does that is well-versed in the law. They're like, no, it won't do that. This has happened before where laws have done things that they did not expect to do things. Um, and so, which is weird to say, but it happens. And so is a runoff a good idea? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Um, that's for you to decide on, on if that's something you'd support or not, but the legislators might be a little bit tidbit looking at it just because, and, and a part of it is just because we're in such a strange situation where we're going to end up with a lot of major governor candidates um, running for governor. I mean, sometimes you end up with, I mean, take a look, take a look at this last Senate race, Senate primary with Rand Paul, right? You had Rand Paul and then you had, I don't know, 10 other people. You literally had 10 other people. Nobody knew who any of them were. I knew who a couple of them were just from random events they were at, but you know, they, they weren't per se serious, super serious candidates. We have a lot of super serious candidates. And then we also have some candidates that who knows? I mean, they may make some grounds up. I mean, it would field with this many people. You could see somebody like a David Cooper or a Robbie Smith coming out of nowhere and, and getting some of the vote there. I think that'd be interesting, certainly to see. So talks are runoff. Okay, final story here. I want to talk about the Biden administration spending $3.6 million for drug vending machines in the Appalachians of Kentucky. It's a test program. What is going to be in these drug drug paraphernalia vending machines? Let me be more specific. What's going to be in this? Well, the NIH, that wonderful organization, of course, is putting this on where to provide injection equipment, Narcan, um, fentanyl test strips, uh, hygiene products, condoms, and other things. So basically, we're providing syringes and crack pipes and things like that to drug users through vending machines now. Now, ignoring the fact that if you go into a head shop and call a quote-unquote water pipe a bong, that is illegal. Yes, in Kentucky, that is illegal. So you so much can't sell drug paraphernalia that you can't even refer to things like a bong as, any, as, as a bong. You have to call it a water pipe if you want to buy it in head shops because it's drug paraphernalia um, by definitionally. 
but yet we have our federal government giving it out for free, spending your taxpayer dollars giving this out. And what's the reasoning behind this? Well, of course, what we see is this is a typical leftist move where they take something that is what I would call not a conservative position and somehow make it a conservative position because we pay for the healthcare and, and everything else of these people. The, the, the idea is, is like, well, if you just provide them clean syringes and clean crack pipes, they'll go ahead and they'll be healthier and safer as they're using drugs. They're going to use it anyways. They're going to do it anyways. So you might as well provide them the paraphernalia to do it. So that way they're not used sharing needles and then the taxpayers don't have to pay for their health care. And that's the problem is it becomes a conservative notion to provide syringes and crack pipes to drug users because we had to pay for their health care when the consequences of their actions come back to haunt them. And so that becomes now a conservative position. And we see already in Kentucky, we see things like the health departments and places like that doing these needle exchanges where they'll exchange your dirty needles for clean needles. And, and the defense of this, of course, is that, well, you know, they're going to do drugs anyways, and at least we'll give them an opportunity to talk to them about their drug uses and provide them some tools so maybe they'll stop using drugs. First off, if they're serious and waffling about not using drugs, one would argue that coming to the to the if 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 they're want if they're worried about being guilted into stopping doing drugs, one would say psychologically they wouldn't show up to a place where somebody's standing there to do that. And so that's one idea. The other thing is is that um, the the logic there is not super great. Okay, now I understand the idea that and look, I'm not saying nobody has ever been helped by needle exchange offering counseling and getting them into rehab and something like that. But it would be like saying that churches should set up prostitutes with rooms and allow them to sell sex at church because, well, they're going to do it anyways, and at least as the Johns and prostitutes come in, we can preach to them the gospel. However, how sincere are you in your belief that it's wrong if you're using your resources and your money to promote the item that they're doing? And, and for those of you who want to say, no, no, the Andrew, that's not the same. It is literally the same, right? It's the same argument. It's the same logic that instead of going to where people are and, and helping them in their positions, instead, we're going to try to put up a beacon to attract them to us so then we can help them. And But they're not forced to take our help, of course. Um, no, instead they can just keep showing up and, and, and getting drugs from us or drug paraphernalia from us until one day maybe they overdose and die or at least they're destroying their lives and we continue to pay for their lifestyle because, well, we had to pay for their health care and everything else. I don't think the logic is sound there, but it gets even worse. At least needle exchanges, they have to go see a person and that person can go to them it gets even worse when we're talking about these drug vending machines because they're not even having to look at a person and take things from them and then receive help. They can just walk up and, and, and get these things out of here and walk away. And so I have to wonder, what is the purpose of this? And I could only come up with one answer. And in, in Kentucky, I'm sorry, but it is very possible that Hunter Biden is moving to the Appalachians of Kentucky. I mean, that's the only thing that can explain it, right? I mean, Joe Biden clearly wants to make sure his son's taken care of and not going to overdose and has clean crack pipes and everything else for his incredibly terrible drug habits. And and guys, I got to say, that's a sad day for Kentucky that Hunter Biden is, is moving to Kentucky. That's a sad day. Sad day. 
But no, in all seriousness, why is this happening? Well, quite frankly, because we have a high drug use and a, a Democrat governor. And because if you did it in a Republican state, the states would shut it down. I, I, I would argue that even it should be legal, right? We should be arresting these federal agents, putting these in place because they're clearly handling drug paraphernalia. And if we arrest a private citizen for selling these same things, then why does the government get to give it away? Using our tax dollars, by the way. Why is it legal for them to do it? But, but putting that to the side, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think needle exchanges are a good idea. I don't think you're large scale. I think you're doing more harm than good. I understand you think, well, I'm helping these people and everything else. But one, you're negating consequences of their actions. Two, two, you're endorsing what they're doing by providing them the tools they need to do it. And then three as well, what does it say about us as a society? If we're saying we are against them doing this, we're against that. Why would we continue to endorse it by spending time and taxpayer dollars giving them the tools they need. And like I said, I understand the argument that, hey, Andrew, these are uh, people are gonna use drugs anyways, and, and at least we can do is provide a safe way for them to do it. But I struggle to see how this is not just like a church allowing Johns and prostitutes to get together on church grounds can't handle it. Well, my name's Andrew Cooper Ryder. Thank you guys for joining me for the Andrew Cooper Ryder Show. Uh, please share this out. Talk with others. You guys have a great, great day.